Hey listeners, and welcome to this month's episode. Now, I'm kind of excited, kind of nervous for you to listen to this one. It's one I've wanted to do for a long while, and Sai and I have been talking a lot about collaborating on this one. Um, so yeah, this episode is about uh, autism and ADHD, and basically being neurodivergent, and how that interacts with being a kinky person or someone with fetishes and how the two interact and inform each other. And I just found it quite interesting topic that no one really talks about much. I kind of bear my soul in this one, but I hope you enjoy. Before we do that, I would like to thank our Patreons. Uh, we've got a few more this week. So... I would like to say thank you to Stuart Timmins, Nick Bain, Adam Ferris, Connor Bone, Deco Very, Brian C, Harry Hypnotist, and Matthew O'Mara. And just like to say, you are Daddy's favourites. If you would like to be Daddy's favourite, you can also sign up on our £10 a month tier. Your support means a lot to us. It helps keep the show going. It means I can upgrade my equipment and keep the editing to a high standard with uh, tools I need. And I just want to say thank you. Now, I hope you enjoy the interview and on with the show. Hello and welcome again to the Kinky Boys podcast. I'm Craig. Um, today we've got a special guest from another podcast. We've got Sai from the Teabag and Joysticks podcast. Hello. And uh, together we're talking about something which I've wanted to do for a while, which is talk about being a person who's both kinky and on the autistic spectrum and the sorts of things that come up because of that. So, hi, Sai, welcome. Hello. How are we? <laughs> good, good. How about yourself? Uh, I can't complain. I have coffee. It is a nice day and the mood is good. So yes. everything is awesome. Brilliant. So yeah, you and I have something in common. Just one thing? Well, we have a lot <laughs> of things in common. But for this, we are both neuroatypical. We're both on the autistic spectrum. We're mm -hmm. both on the ADHD spectrum. Yes. So yeah, and... We're going to talk today about how that intersects with our kinky lives and mm -hmm. how we do play. Now, I will say up front, being on the autistic spectrum is a broad range of things and it affects everyone a bit differently. So our two experiences will not encapsulate or represent everyone's experience with this. No, absolutely not. But the like, the thing to remember with autism is, it, or while it is a spectrum of conditions and spectrum of effects, everybody has a different experience of it because of it being a spectrum. So the way that it affects myself will be very different to the way it affects yourself, which mm -hmm. will be very different to the way it affects Joe Blogs down the street and whoever else you decide to pick, yeah. you know? I mean, one of the things I've always heard is it's better to not describe it as a spectrum, but more like a pick and mix. Ooh, I've not heard that before. Yeah, because some people can have sensory processing issues. Some people can mm. have very few sensory processing issues. Some people can have communication issues. Some people can have emotional regulation issues. And it's just everyone has different matches in different amounts. I've never heard it described that way before, but I like that. See, yeah. the, the, the analogy that I've heard before is describing it like disco lights. Mm -hmm. So, like, you, you know... 
maybe this is going back and showing my age a bit, but uh, it used to be a thing that in like the nineties in particular, like you would get these big box disco lights and it would be separated and you'd have like so many of these lights on at any one point, but not all of them. Yeah. So we will not be representative of everyone's experience. And we've had in ourselves very different experiences. Yep. So I think we should start with a base definition and some terms we'll be using. Sure. So ASD, or Autism Spectrum Disorder, is, as we've discussed, a group of disorders, which, I mean, I don't like to call them disorders. It's basically our brains work differently. Yeah. This is what we mean when we say neuroatypical. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to put a neuroatypical. I can't even say it today. Yeah. Neural atypical. The, th- the thing to remember about it is as well, it used to actually be a number of disparate syndromes and a number yeah. of disparate conditions that all came under a single banner about, mm-hmm. I think it was about 10 years ago they changed it. So when I was actually diagnosed, they didn't call it ASD. There's still a little bit of a controversy about the way that I was diagnosed because I was diagnosed with Asperger's. Mm which, depending on who you talk to, is either a separate thing or part of the same thing, or both. No, it can be like that. It's like, we've talked about both being ADHD. Mm -hmm. That's often considered a separate thing, but it it interacts with the elements of, like, autism in a very interesting way. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) So... So it's basically often we think in different ways, we experience emotions in different ways, and we process sensory information. Yes. So generally speaking, we process all types of information differently from a neurotypical person. Yep. Like one of the tests when I got diagnosed was the doctor asked me, so when you feel a new emotion, what does it feel like? Does it feel like an explosion in your head? Oh, Um, that was quite an interesting thing because, yeah, emotions are very immediate and they are like big explosions of information in my head. Mm. And I'm like, does not everyone experience emotions that way? You mean people experience them different from that? That's interesting because there's definitely times that that is the case for me, but I associate that more with being overloaded than I do general day to day emotion. Oh, yeah. But there's definitely times that that happens. Yes. I mean, maybe that's a good point to introduce this idea of overload, which the idea, the thing with overload is, so I'll describe the way that I experience it because the way you experience it might be slightly different because mm-hmm. one thing I've learned is everyone has a slightly different take on how this occurs. Mm-hmm. For me, overload is very sensory driven. It can be emotion driven, but for me, it tends to be more sensory driven and it, it's, I there's no necessarily rhyme or reason to it. It's slightly worse if I'm tired, I guess, but it's not a guarantee. And it will be that I, my sensation, my senses start ramping up. So the sense of touch, certain smells, sounds, etc., will become more and more intense. And it, and even now, talking about it, I'm getting like very tight, as you can yeah. probably see. But sort of, I go from being on my baseline to everything suddenly feeling almost like every sense is a pressure. Yeah. So sound feels physical. Mm-hmm. Uh, emotion can feel physical. So it's a, to, like, obviously touch does, but like send, everything begins, begins to feel like a pressure in my head. And when I hit a certain point, I can no longer manage. And I will do one of two things. I either shut down and I, do, I not like catatonic shut down, but sort of I become 
almost non-responsive. And in that, in that, mm-hmm. if that happens, I either just stop where I am, or I, if I've still got enough in me energy-wise, because it the energy drain is real, mm-hmm. I will try and remove myself from as much of the input as I can. So that's usually I get as far away from whatever bright flashing lights are on, whatever noise I can, because obviously I can't change the touch and the scent because sense it sense it all around you and like touch like you're wearing clothes or, or whatever like there's going to be touch so it's like I try and shut down as much of the other senses as I can which is one of the reasons if you ever see me out in public I nearly always have even when I'm like with people I nearly always have noise suppressing headphones on same, because I bought same. noise suppressing headphones that I can that have a feature on them that let voice through and nothing else mm-hmm. which massively has Really, really, it's not a complete panacea, but it's like it really helped me with that side of things. No, no. I, yeah, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head. That's very much how I experience it as well. It's sort of like I cannot experience nightclubs because nightclubs, like the music, the way it's mm. like constant surrounding pressure yep. feels like violence to me. Yeah, I can understand that. So, like, I've never been able to really go to clubs or even loud bars. If so, I'm mine's a little mixed. I can do it if I am with the right people mm-hmm. in the right headspace. It's easier if it's a bar I've been to before because there's a familiarity and I, I know. The layout, I've got an idea of what the people tend to be like. I've got an idea of like a lot of different variables that tend to kind of, they almost act as like anchoring points. But I can't always do it. And there's been times where like I've gone out with like, I always refer to them as my family, but like, like the guys that I uh, know and like we've gone like intending to go out on a night out and I've got there and gone, you know what, I can't do this. And I've gone back to the hotel. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it sucks, but it's what it is. <laughs> yeah, like dealing with that takes a lot of mental energy. And th- this is going to be a theme that comes up a lot because mm-hmm. like one of the things I find helping with it is if I can freely stim, which we're getting onto another term, which is yeah. stimming. So often part of the way autistic people deal with information, especially when we're getting a lot of information, is to sort of channel it into physical movement. So mm-hmm. for me, I will flap my hands about. I will pace yep. about swinging my arms. If I'm getting particularly distressed or overloaded, I will rapidly slap the back of my neck. Which, right. Which my partner says it can be quite distressing to see me doing that. Because mm-hmm. uh, obviously I'm hurting myself. But like, No, I think that's quite common. I've heard from part- partners in the past, like it, it's... My, my stimming has changed over time. Oh, yeah. But I've heard from partners in the past, like some of my stimming actions can be very distressing. And I've heard it from other people, like from the outside, because they don't, they don't know what's going on inside. All they see is the physicality. Yeah. Yeah. And it, what you understand is inside, it is burning off and processing the emotions mm-hmm. or the sensations. And it's like, it's actually giving me relief, even though it looks quite violent and rapid on the outside. Yep. And... Yeah, so this is something we do, and this leads us on to another term, mm-hmm. masking. <laughs> yes. And this ties back into burning through a lot of mental energy dealing with this. Yep. So 
you know, we live in a neurotypical world. We live in a world with expectations and manners and societal norms built around people behaving in a neurotypical way. Yes. So there is a lot of pressure on people on the spectrum to conform to those standards. Mm -hmm. This, and when we do, this is called masking. And so it's essentially where, like, we just talked about stimming. It's where you will suppress stimming. So I will suppress the urge to flap my hands or slap the back of my neck and just sit there quietly. This takes a lot of mental effort. And it also means I can't process the information that's coming into my brain or senses. Mm -hmm. And this, it's an incredibly energy and mental stamina intensive thing to do. It is, and I don't know about yourself, but it's not always a conscious thing for me. And it, it's interesting because I'm sitting here and I can feel myself doing it. Because it's one of those things that, for me, for me, the way that I stim is I tend to tap. Yeah. And I tend to be like tapping on myself self, or like I'm shaking my leg. Or People misread it as fidgeting, which is interesting when I was like, if you want to talk about like how ADHD and Asperger's overlap, like ADHD, the hyperactivity side of it can sometimes be read as fidgeting as well and sometimes it's very difficult to work out which is which but it's definitely something that yeah it's taxing but it's not always i think there can be a misconception that it's taxing in the moment Mm -hmm. and that's not always true for me if i am masking or i am working through it it's the day after the day like that evening sort of thing i'm going to be burnt out but it's the day after that it truly hits because it's the day after once i've slept and once everything's released and my body my body realizes almost like what it's burnt because at the end of the day you're still trying to process what's happened in the day Mm. the day afterwards is when it it sort of catches you and i i've always referred to it as kind of a social hangover Because for me, one of the big things with my Asperger's is it's, and this is kind of ironic considering what we're doing now and what I do Mm. with the podcast, but it's communication. I struggle with communication really heavily. Like me and yourself, don't take this the wrong way, but like even talking to yourself, even though I know you, talking to you in this setting is a little bit draining to me. Yeah. Because we've never spoken in this setting. We've spoken before, but we've not been on this kind of, kind of, kilter scenario whatever word you want to use here so i'm gonna have a little bit of a drain off after this i I know this and i actually have to factor that in and it's interesting because this will sound really strange but i forget there are times like i will schedule myself and i will end up make having to make cancellations because i will have scheduled too much in and not realized which has been really problematic at times for quite obviously because you know You've said you can you committed to doing X, Y, and Z, and then oh, I can't do that because I haven't got the, I haven't got the energy to, I haven't yeah. got the, you know, and it's, it's honestly it's a bit of a trip. Like when when because for me as well, I'll do this and I'll burn myself out, and I won't always realize I've done it, and so I'll keep mm-hmm. working through the burnout. Yeah, which ends up making the kickback that much worse. Yeah, I literally had one of those days yesterday. Mm-hmm. My brain just was not working. My executive dysfunction was through the roof. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't do anything yesterday because I had had such a stressful week that required me to communicate so much. Mm-hmm. And it's, although 
just to go back to something you said, I find it interesting that it takes a lot readjusting to talking to someone in a certain setting. Yep. So for me, a big stress is small talk when there's no sort of social script. Yep. That I find quite troubling and hard to deal with. Whereas in situations like this, where I am essentially communicating with a very clear agenda and script, Mm -hmm. I find that so much easier to do. There's no pressure to think on the spot as much. I absolutely agree with that. Mm. It's... So in my brain, everything sort of has almost a situational context, which I guess everyone's does, I think, I say, as someone who's not NT. Yeah. Shorthand for neurotypical, for those that aren't aware. But if things are within that context, I can flow a lot easier than if I'm in a context I don't know. So one of the reasons, like, just to give you like an example of how this is working in my head right now for the listeners, like, one of the reasons I find this slightly more difficult is because, Craig, me and you know each other to talk to each other otherwise, but we've never spoken to each other in this sense where I'm coming onto your show. Yeah. So to me, I'm not used to being on the back foot because when we do our show, like, my partner will tell you this, like, usually on the show... I'm usually the one calling the shots going, right, this is how we need to do this. This is how we do it. And in the back of my head, I'm editing this at the same time and everything else. I'm not doing that here. This is very uncomfortable for me because I'm not used to being on this side. (laughs) Which makes me sound like I'm a bit of a control freak, but it's not that. It's more just this is different contextually to what I'm used to doing. The way our brains read context is quite interesting. Mm. Just to go back to something you said about feeling burnt out, there is a phenomenon called autistic burnout. Mm -hmm. And it is essentially from having to mask and generate the constant sort of mental energy to keep up with sort of neurotypical standards. Yeah, it does hit you hard. And obviously there's like the day-to-day things where like you have to spend a day afterwards essentially having what you call the social hangover. Mm Mm-hmm. But it also builds up over time. And like, so I'll be honest, there have been days where I've had to call in sick to work just because I just didn't have the mental resources to process yep. it. Yep. Although, interesting, this has happened a lot less since working from home began. But you're not having to mask on the way in and out of work and deal with people. Yeah, because uh, yeah. yeah. working in an open plan office is awful for me because it's constant sound stimulations and because yep. i'm sitting right next to my colleagues i often feel like i can't fully stim mm-hmm. whereas here working from home i can get up i can walk around i can do whatever i need to do with my arms i can play with a stim toy if that helps yep and so what it means is i'm not expending all this energy so i'm not getting the autistic burnout i used to so i can and can't relate to that because for me I need a set space to do different things. So I was doing my dissertation when COVID hit and isolation was in big Mm -hmm. swing. Trying to do my dissertation work at my desk in my room did not work for me Mm -hmm. because my desk in my room is where my media center is. That is my chill out space. That is where I go at the end of the day to play video games, whatever, that lets me turn my brain off. And that is what that space is for. So then trying to do work in that space doesn't work. So working from home, for me, is difficult. Mm -hmm. Because 
it's not this context to do that particular thing. Yeah. I'm one of these people that, that I that working out at home doesn't work for me either for the same reason. And it's one of those things like there's a context to do different things. But yeah. th- that's the way it manifests for me. Other people find it so much nicer to do it at home and things. I fully get that. It's like I have my work desk. If I'm chilling out, I go to pl- look at my laptop on the sofa. Because mm-hmm. that is where entertainment happens. Yep. So one of the big differences between our two stories is you were sort of diagnosed quite young. I yes. was diagnosed essentially three years ago. So mm-hmm. I'm into my 30s. And yep. I only just get the information that I'm autistic. Interesting. Because so I was diagnosed when I was young. But we didn't find out for about three years after mm-hmm. I was diagnosed. Not anyone's fault. Okay, well... Okay, I don't think it was anyone's fault. I think it was just a miscommunication thing, which is kind of ironic if you think about it. But I didn't find out until I was in my teenage years. And it's... Knowing has been a benefit, but it's not been necessarily the benefit that you would think. Because it's not like, oh, he's known since he was 13. He's been able to put all these coping strategies in and everything else. Yeah, I've got maybe a couple of extra coping strategies that I had to develop being young uh-huh. and dealing with it and everything else. It doesn't mean that there wasn't impact because there was like, I, I dropped out of uh, college uh-huh. and just didn't engage with education at all after what was immediately mandatory until a good few years later. And then I went back and got my degrees because I just wasn't in a place that I could do that. And it, it, it was very much a mental thing. Like I just wasn't in a situation that, I could do it, you know? And even now, like, there's some, there's definitely some things that I, I still struggle. Like, dealing with anyone I don't know is, hmm. it's a struggle. Jesus. Yeah. Like, I I can be damn near mute with some people because I just can't get my head in mm-hmm. a certain context. And especially, like, if there's additional pressures in that context, etc. Oh, yeah. I, and it, it's, it's interesting because it, it's, you I don't know if you get this. I don't necessarily want everyone to know. And I say, I say oh, this yeah. realizing that I'm coming on a podcast talking about it, but like, I'm not one of these people that wants everyone to know and make adjustments because I don't like it when people are making adjustments as daft as that sounds, because in my experience, people making adjustments go too far. Yes. However, with that said, there are times I need adjustments and these two come into conflict because you don't want to raise your voice and say, I need these adjustments because you don't want to be the one that stands out. But at the same time, these adjustments may be helped. And it's where do you make that balance? And it's always a constant struggle in my head. Like, how do I make this balance? So I'm not out at work to mm-hmm. anyone but my immediate managers. My managers know because they're the ones I make adjustments with. They're the ones mm-hmm. I need to communicate this with. I haven't yet told my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And I've been debating about whether I should essentially come out at work and yeah it it's difficult because one thing i've been picking out is okay is this me being sensible or is this like internalized ableism i mean i think that's going to depend on who you talk to as to where they come down on that for me personally it comes down to personal autonomy and it comes down to how much are you willing to share with x y and z Mm -hmm. so for example the people that i play with if they're a regular partner, they probably know. Uh, if they're a one-off partner, probably not. Yeah. Unless we're doing something that's going to affect it. 
because I know certain things do affect mm. like my kink sort of thing. It's not usually something I'm going to bring up. Yeah. And I think that's a good point where we can start talking about how Orsa's yeah. doing kink interacts. So, um, so you're rough. You're, as I understand it, mostly on the dominant end of things. See, this is interesting. So, I describe myself as a versatile dom. However, with that description, I am aware that my versatility is somewhat conditional. I once shocked <laughs> so, uh, a few years ago. I had some uh, some specialist psychology work with an autism specialist, and I sat down in the in the first session and went, hey, you know. I'm kinky, got a boyfriend, this, that, and the other, which, you know, I don't think they, they used to people being very blunt. I don't think they were quite used to that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I turned around to them and said, like, I have noticed that my kink shifts. So I will be dominant more when I feel that life is a little less in my control mm-hmm. and things feel a little bit more intangible in the day to day life. I tend to be slightly more dominant. Mm-hmm. When I'm much more in control, I tend to be more willing to go the other way. And I tend to be more submissive. This is not a hard and fast rule. And for example, in my relation, like I'm polyamorous, but in my relationship yeah. with, with what, like one of my partners, even though he's my only partner at the moment, my, like my boy, Chris, who does the show with me, I am his sir. Yeah. And we have a very well established, like I am his sir. He's my boy. And like, that's our established dynamic, but we will occasionally switch that. Mm-hmm. But as a rule, I tend to present myself as more dominant because I'm probably slightly more comfortable in that role. Yeah. Because again, there's a number of elements involved in it, but part of it is if I'm dominant in a scene, I have slightly more control in that scene, which means that I'm slightly more comfortable in that scene because Mm -hmm. there's less dynamics that are spinning me out in terms of that tax of trying to work it out. Yeah. And that is this is going to make me come off as a control freak. And it's is not that it's literally that sort of like, if I am in the, in the unknown position with a dom, especially if a dom doesn't communicate well, I can't do doms yeah. that don't communicate well. I don't have to know everything you're going to do, but at least communicate with me. It's, it doesn't work for me because my mind gets too caught up in everything else to actually be enjoying the scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> No, that, that, when you're saying that to me, it makes perfect sense. So I'm sort of the flip of that where I'm versatile bottom. Mm-hmm. So most of the time I'm the bottom and once in a blue moon, I will get in the mood to be dominant. Mm-hmm. And the thing I find with dominant being dominant is I enjoy it, but it's also exhausting for me. Oh, I'm not denying that for a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it takes a lot of effort. And I, mm-hmm. at the end, I'm like, oh, I can't do this all the time. It's... <laughs> when me and my boy meet we are always enrolled near enough but we refer to times as having like an intense session versus a, a normal session mm-hmm. and so an intense session is is very regimented it's yeah. very much right you are going to follow these protocols you're going to do this mm-hmm. you're going to do this and i'm going to hold you to every letter of it whereas a normal session there will still be an expectation of the protocols. There will still be like, you're my boy and we're going to do X, Y, Z within, mm-hmm. obviously within what we've negotiated, but I'll let a lot more slide. Yeah. Because honestly, I don't have the energy to 
track every single, you know, and that doesn't work for some people. And I get that. Some people want that very strict, very, and uh, that's, that's fine. I can do that on occasion. Can't do that every time. See, this gets into something with me, which is, this is more the ADHD side of me. Mm. Strict protocol terrifies me because I know I will not remember it. I will forget Mm -hmm. it. I will misread what I'm meant to do. You know, my object permanence is zero, so I will forget things. Mm -hmm. So I, the idea of putting myself into a position where I am given strict hardline protocols is terrifying to me. And you see, that's somewhat the opposite for me because I'm one of these people. And again, I keep saying this, and I guess this is something like, I guess I need to kind of work through a bit, but like, I keep saying like, I sound like a control freak and I, you know, it's not a control thing. It's an, your own understanding thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. But like, I'm one of these people that works best with routine. Yeah. Routine is a big thing for me. So protocol works really well for me because protocol is just essentially another word for routine. If X, then Y. I, I, want, I once had a tutor describe the way my brain works as, as being very much like Java or Python programming mm-hmm. in binary. So it's just like, if X event, do Y action type of thing. And, and sort of, the, this is like the way that my brain works so protocol for me works really well yeah but i can't i one thing i found is i I find very few doms actually able to keep me submissive partly because i need them to be firm and partly because i need them to put that protocol in and usually i can find one or the other but not both yeah it, it can be hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah and and it's very interesting seeing how kinks interact with like like autistic syndrome stuff mm-hmm. and this is really what I, the meat of what i wanted to get into like how does it affect kinks and fetishes yep. like one thing i've realized is a lot of my fetishes aren't because they're sexy it's because they give me a pleasure and release i can't get elsewhere yeah like, i can understand that mummification so audience listeners remember when we talked about information overload and how stimulation can be quite difficult to process being mummified, blindfolded, and having earplugs put in and being left there mm-hmm. is wonderful for my autistic <laughs> brain because it means there's n- none of the bandwidth is being taken up and I can just rest. I have a question for you on that front uh, mm. as a fellow autist. Did you find it disconcerting the idea of doing it the first time? Yes. Because to me, I see the appeal in it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the idea of having all of that suddenly cut off is as unsettling to me as having too much. So the idea of it being uh, cutting off was unsettling. However, because of the way the play session went, I was put into bondage quite slowly. Mm-hmm. So obviously wrapped up and then like... You know, it was slow and sensual, which mm-hmm. basically meant my information level was being gradually reduced. Right. Which helps. Interesting. And I'm not the first person to discover this. So I briefly worked in a sex shop. Right. And we had an uh, order to repair a vac bed. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so we had an order to repair a vac bed. Mm-hmm. And the order was coming in from essential, a caretaker social worker. Right. And she had it for one of the people she was caretaking for non-sexual purposes. He just liked to go in the back bed before bed 
to essentially reduce stimulation to calm him down enough to sleep. Okay. Yeah, and I was like, oh, well, so this is literally just to help someone who's quite severe in their information processing issues sleep. That's an interesting solution. Yeah, but thinking about, like, Weighted blankets are pop- quite popular with autistic yep. people because obviously it gives that pressure on the body. Yep. So does a vat crack. True. Yeah. I I guess so. I I. My see you you say this to me and my brain goes, but how did they get to that point? <laughs> I <laughs> you know. I wondered. I'm like. Yeah. Again, like even someone who needs a caretaker still has sexual needs. Oh no! Don't don't like, misunderstand me. I'm not saying they don't. It's just more like this is. I don't know. It's just, it's not the context you expect to hear that in, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, fair enough. No, it's it's something I've not tried, but it's, it's like I said, there's an apprehension there of having, it's, to me, it's almost the same as having too much, like having too little. There's almost like a baseline I need to try and maintain. So uh, on this show, I've often talked about the fact that I'm really into hypno. Mm Mm-hmm. That... A yes. large part of it is because yes. being in a hypnosis state is also really a really nice vacation for mm-hmm. my brain. And I think this is more ADHD. Part of my ADHD is I have several inner monologues going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. I know not everyone has an internal monologue, but I do. And mm-hmm. I have several. And the best way I can describe it is when I'm like going under and in a hypnotic state... I literally go down from about three internal monologues to just like one or maybe half of one if I'm going really deep. Mm-hmm. And that is just so nice for me. It's a nice vacation <laughs> for my brain. You see, I practice hypno with the boy mm-hmm. and I'm usually the test. I have yet to find a hypnotist that can take me under mm. because my brain just rebels because I am overanalytical. Mm-hmm. Which is useful for work, but not for, <laughs> for much else. And the ADHD part of me just doesn't happen. It just doesn't like it. I can't shut it down. Like little little aside, it was, it was funny at uni. We had a study session, me and a group of friends at one point, and everyone's struggling through with this question. And I look at this question and go, "Oh no!" Like you do this and you do this and this, and I linked it back through seven different questions. Yeah. And and they just took one look at me and went, "How?" It's like, what do you mean? It's just like. You're never paying attention. You're always fidgeting. You've usually got like seven different things going on on your screen at any one time. How have you just managed to like pull the one thing that's managed to flummox everyone out and just rattle it off as if it's nothing? And I'm like, because that's how my brain works. <laughs> my brain's not happy unless I've got 20 things going on at once. <laughs> okay, question. Do you mm-hmm. also do this? And I, f- and I only just heard this is something for people on the autistic spectrum, which is spoiling twists in movies before they happen because you figured it out ahead of the Because film. you've tracked, yeah. Sometimes, not all the time, but yeah. When yeah. a good one happens and it gets me, it's like, oh my God. Yeah. But like yeah, usually time, like, like, I'll see the trope six, six moves forward yeah, and everyone's yeah. like, oh, it's like, well, we knew that was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> like, didn't everyone know that was going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait, Iron Man died? It's like, you didn't see this? <laughs> We've got a few questions sent in by a listener. Mm-hmm. Us. One of them is being able to not mask or camouflage in a kink scene because you're in a safe space. So obviously we've talked about masking 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, in our natural state, when we don't have to conform to sort of societal pressures, we drop the mask. Do you, how do you find that works in a kink scene for you? Well, I was going to say, do you want to take this first? Because I suspect that my answer to this may be slightly different to yours. Sure. Well, it's actually, it's, it's been very interesting because in kink scenes, I never used to drop masking before. Right. I used to keep masking. Mm-hmm. Lately, in kink scenes, I've actually been relaxed enough to drop that. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of an emotional moment for me because the Dom I'm regularly playing with, he he basically said, part of what's fun for me is seeing me have an effect on a person. Yep. And he really enjoys, especially when like dirty talking or just going through a scene or talking to me, mm-hmm. he can see his words having a really impactful effect on me. Yeah. Start stimming in ways. Like, okay. Like Interesting. When I'm told I'm a good boy. I like physically shudder. Yeah. Because that's my physical processing. Mm-hmm. Stimming with it. And for him to see that is really pleasing. And that, Okay, this is where it gets a bit emotional. That was the first time I'd ever been praised and affirmed for stimming. And that was something really deep for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. So for me, again, it depends who I'm with. Mm -hmm. I don't drop any masking with a partner that I don't play with regularly. Because I don't feel comfortable to. Yeah. And I should say at this point, masking is not always a conscious thing for me. Mm-hmm. I'm at the risk of this sounding a little ableist. Like I'm fortunate that my stimming tends to be, not always, but tends to be self-contained in a point it can just come across as a bit fidgety or a little bit sort of nervous. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like I'm usually just like... I'm one of these people I've always got music. Yeah. Whether it's through my headphones or whether I'm in an environment, I've got music. And growing up, one of my key interests was music. So I'm always counting beats. Mm-hmm. So I'm always counting beats on my fingers. So that's how I tend to stim. Like I'm counting beats like the 4-4 or the 3-4 or so on through my fingers or through tapping on like my leg or mm-hmm. something like that. So you don't tend to see it. So it's never really been something that I've heavily masked. And I say that this about like partners that I play as one-offs. Like I don't tend to meet many guys for one-offs anyway. Mm-hmm. If I'm having a one-off, it's usually at an event or something. Yeah. So there's usually music. So I'm usually counting the beat. So it's usually I've either got an internal count going and I'm, I'm doing a mental stim. Mm-hmm. Or I'm doing a tap, which, or I'm tapping my foot or something, which just comes over as, oh, he's just enjoying the beat. If I'm with my partner, however, I will be more likely to drop certain things. But with that said, it's only me and my partner have been together. So we've been boyfriends for three years and sir and sub for three and a half, which is a whole, like... <laughs> If you want to know the history of that, we did an episode on polyamory and our histories yeah. in there. But we, it's only maybe in the last, it would have been just before the pandemic. So we're, we're talking about a year and a half, year like a year and eight, 
nine months ago that I started to drop some of it. And I don't always do it. It's not a conscious thing necessarily. Mm-hmm. But there's, I'm definitely much more willing to say to him, I can't deal with X, Y, or Z today yeah. than I would have been with somebody else. And some of my more regular partners, it depends how much they get it. Oh, yeah. So I've got a guy who like, I affectionately refer to him as my son. Like he, he refers to me as daddy, which is the only reason. Like I don't usually do daddy son play, but like he's always called me daddy for some reason. So it's just become a thing. And I will say to him, like if like if we're talking, even because we don't really do sessions as such, but if we're talking, like I'll be much more likely to drop it with him because yeah. I know he gets it. Yeah. And it very much comes down to does this person have an understanding? Oh yeah, totally. And totally. that's so for me I don't necessarily drop it in a session because I tend to find a lot of guys don't understand it or have a misunderstanding of what it is. Mm. Because like I said before, like I have found that people have a fixed idea of what autism is. And when you don't conform to that, they suddenly don't know how to handle you. Yeah, And, you know, you say, you ask someone to describe someone who's autistic or point to someone who's autistic, and they're going to probably point out someone like Sheldon Cooper, which is interesting because that, apparently that character is not autistic, but they're coded in such a way that that's how they come over. So, yeah, I, I'll, be, I'll be blunt. So they very consciously write him as autistic. They just would never admit it because that means they would have to admit that all the base of their humor is making fun of an autistic person. I would hesitate to level that accusation at them directly, but I can't say I entirely disagree either. They listen to this podcast, but they may. But but, but then they're not going to point out people that are on the spectrum that everyone reveres as if to go like, look, these people are as well, but you don't realize. But like, people don't realize like, Autism doesn't always present itself in a way that you can tell, you know? One of the things that I get when I tell people, it's like, oh, you're autistic. I would never have known. And I hate that with Mm -hmm. a passion. And I get it's well-intended, but it doesn't come over that way. It comes over as patronizing as all... (laughs) (laughs) If if anyone ever tells you they're autistic or or they've got Asperger's, don't turn around and go, oh, well, I wouldn't know. Hmm. There's, there's no quicker way to make me realize that I, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> it's one of those subtle things where people don't realize it, but it is just so infuriating because it's like, you know, so how does an autistic person, mm-hmm. what stereotype am I not living up to? Yeah. Uh, autism is one of those weird ones that it's, you have difficulties in situations and your difficulties are difficult enough to be difficult for you. Mm-hmm. But the other person, because they don't see what's going on, don't perceive you as having difficulty. Yeah. Unless you're at a certain level, at which point all they see is difficulty. And to them, it's a very binary thing. But to us, it's really not. Even mm-hmm. simply turning up in the first place has mm-hmm. had 200 little battles that you don't realize. Yes. You know, and people talk about depression this way, and it's kind of the accepted thing that you don't understand what's going on underneath with depression. People don't realize it applies to other things like autism and things like that as well. Yeah, yeah. And again, this ties back into talking about autistic burnout. The amount of mental energy it takes to force your brain 
to function in a way to fit into a neurotypical world is a forget mess. that just to get out of bed some days like mm. it's, that's not just a depression thing that can be an autistic thing like just summon the will to do what you know you've got to face and what like the energy drain that that's going to cause can be enough to just immobilize you for a period yeah like when i refer to the social hangover that's kind of what i'm referring to it's just like okay i know i need to do xyz but I burnt all my resources yesterday and I don't have the energy to do that right now. I just about have the energy to get out of bed and get a coffee mm. and then we'll see how I'm feeling. And on days like that, like I have to take those, those steps one at a time and literally it becomes a judgment call at every juncture. And literally some days that will just be a case of I sat up yeah. <laughs> and I know that sounds extreme, but it's yeah. true. Like some days that will just be an ext- a, a, a juncture of I sat up. Have I got the energy to do the next step? Yep. But you yeah. try and explain that to somebody who has never dealt with this firsthand and it just seems very alien concept. And I get like your, your listeners right now might be listening to me going, oh, well, you know, he's, he's not autistic. He's just depressed or whatever. No, like these yeah. are ongoing battles daily that if you talk to most autistic people, they'll probably turn around and say to you, yeah, that sounds familiar or maybe that's not how I experience it. But I can kind of relate that to somewhere else within. And while we all have a different experience of it, there's some threads that do seem common. They just may manifest in different times or different ways. So I've been learning about the neurochemistry of a lot of this. Mm -hmm. So what you've described is basically the catch-all term is is executive dysfunction. Right. Okay. I've never heard this. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. There's like, once you learn and look into ways to help with it, it, it's amazing, like the brain chemistry, because mm. like the brain chemistry is amazing. So concentration, memory, and organizing thoughts is all fueled by dopamine. Dopamine <laughs> is like putting right. a fuel into an engine. Autistic brains, especially people on the ADHD spectrum, mm-hmm. either do not produce dopamine or do not uptake dopamine. Mm-hmm. And this is leads to a thing where our brains will rebel against any task that does not produce dopamine because it knows it is essentially going to starve. It's like if the brain is going, if you make me do this task, I will burn through what little dopamine I have and I will start to starve. Mm -hmm. So as a survival mechanism, I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. The best way I can describe it is this is going to be horrible. So trigger warning violence but imagine if someone was forcing you to stick your hand on a hot stove yeah you would I have see where to you're going. overcome a mental barrier to force yourself to do that that's what it's like having executive dysfunction but it's for shit like um doing getting out dishes. of bed <laughs> yeah getting out of bed showering like now i start my day every day start my day every day on my phone yeah, I, I don't. I don't get. I don't sit up, etc. I start every day either on my phone or on my tablet reading a comic. Mm-hmm. And literally, that, that I built that into my routine. Mm-hmm. And it, now that you say th- about yeah. the executive function, it makes me wonder because that is a source mm. of dopamine. It's like whenever I do something I don't want to do, I put on a podcast I really enjoy or music I really enjoy because that replenishes my dopamine. Mm. Interesting. And yeah. I, I'm going to have to look into that more. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like the neurochemistry behind it is amazing. And it starts to make stuff that just seems weird. It makes so much more sense. Mm. No, I'm, I'm going to have to read into that more. Mm. And this is part of like the ADHD or autistic experience, because 
we both found out of different types in our lives. Mm-hmm. The amount, the lack of information you get on it, like, is insane. Like, here's a diagnosis. Go on your way. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's it. Everything I've learned, like that has blown my mind and like improved my way of living and life and how I interact with the world has almost exclusively come from other autistic or ADHD people on the internet. Like informatic pictures on Tumblr, like TikToks about it. Like ADHD TikTok is amazing for learning about this stuff. So I won't use TikTok for no, a no, number of no, reasons. I fully understand. TikTok is very endemic of what is wrong with the social media overall, mm-hmm. with the short form content, etc. I also have particular problems with its parent company, but that's yes. a whole other issue I won't get into here. I didn't have autism specific counseling until my late 20s. And I've been diagnosed since I was a teenager. Now, part of that is because I was hesitant to have it. And that's a whole thing in and of itself that we won't get into right now. But part of that is access and knowing what to access. And having that specific counselling specifically tailored made a lot of other things sit in line. Yeah. It doesn't mean it was a panacea, but it means that I understand certain things better now. And I can communicate certain things better to other people now as well. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I very mean, well, I've ended up taking this on the tangent here, so I apologise. <laughs> no, no, no. It's something too important. Like, there are probably a lot of people listening to this episode uh, just realising... Wait, you're just describing what I go through. Yep. And it's like, yep. yeah, it's like, so yeah, learn more. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, to get a proper diagnosis, it is a long trek. Or- and yeah, and the thing is, if, if you are listening, to, uh, the thing I'll say is, if you're listening to this and going, this sounds very familiar, mm-hmm. there is never any harm. Like, and I, I obviously I'm talking from a UK perspective where we don't have to worry about the cost up front of doing this. Mm-hmm. But there's never any harm going to your GP and going, hey, I think this might be a thing. And if your GP is good, they'll sit there and go, well, why do you think this might be a thing? And tell them, like, I was listening to a podcast. They were talking about it and so much of it links up. I'd like to be assessed. Yeah. The assessment may take time to come through. But there's never any harm in doing it. There's only really benefit to doing it because even if you don't necessarily take anything from it, in terms of, because let's let's make make clear to listeners, you can't medicate autism. People have yeah. tried. There are organisations out there that insist they can cure it, which are tossers. Oh. Sorry, oh, yeah. If anyone has ever listened to our podcast, I have gone on several rants about certain organisations. This is not a constant thing I've done, but like there's occasions it comes up. But there are organisations out there that insist they can cure it, or they link it back to vaccines. Or No, sorry, fuck off. It's a thing that happens. It's a natural thing that happens. Deal. But it, you can't medicate it. And some people are going to sit there and go, well, what's the point in going forward and talking about it? The thing, The point is, if you understand yourself, mm-hmm. you can then better... One, communicate with the world. Two, interact with the world because you start to understand what drains you, etc. Because you start talking to people, etc. And, and working it all out. And actually, this may sound really strange, but the autistic-specific counselling that I got is a big reason that I am now so comfortable to stand here and go, yeah, I'm kinky, mm-hmm. and everything else. Not because that's linked directly but because through talking with the counselor, I got an understanding of where my kink fits with sort of almost managing my condition to some degree. 
Yeah, like unpicking a lot of the things we pick up from the world is a monumental task, but it Mm -hmm. really helps. And I I guess kind of this is tangented, but this has kind of come back a bit. Your like the show notes here is like Kingdom Media Sam as an autistic special interest. And that can be a thing. Now, when we talk about this, you need to be careful of avoiding something called savant syndrome, which if you've ever seen any media that involves an autistic person written by someone who's neurotypical, you usually see savant syndrome tropes, which is, oh, you know, they've got autism and they, you know, they can't communicate or they can't talk or whatever, or they struggle with social cues, etc., which are all traits of autism. Different people, different effects, etc. These are all traits of autism that can, that can manifest. Oh, but they really excel in mathematics, physics, Sheldon Cooper, medical, like procedural stuff, like, you know, what's is it called? The Good Doctor, the American show that's on at the moment. Or, you know, pick X special interest subject and, oh, they're a savant. In- no, that's not how that works. Like... It is not necessarily uncommon for someone with autism to have a strength in an area that to some degree, like they will be weak in some areas and, and stronger in others. So for example, I do struggle with words. Well, I struggle with words, but that's not what I mean. I struggle <laughs> with social cues. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn, and even now I get it wrong, but I had to learn by rote social mm-hmm. expressions, mannerisms, Picking apart what people mean when they're not saying directly what they mean. Oh, yeah. That's something I've had to pick apart. But then like there's other areas that I do particularly well with and it's special interest areas. But that's me. That's not every person with autism. Yeah. It's not uncommon to have an area that they excel in, but that's not necessarily savant. It's not they are the best at what they do in this area. It just means that that's a particular interest. Yeah. So for me, music, computing, even the podcast, like mm-hmm. putting all that together, it all links into these areas that I work really well in. And I've, I, and I've ended up like structuring like my academic career, my career around the fact that IT is one of my things. Like IT is something I do particularly well in. And knowing how to play your strengths is a really good way of coping with the, with the effects of autism but it's not always a panacea and just because you're really good in one thing doesn't mean you don't have the burnout because yeah. that's the other thing yeah. that you always see this is the other side of savant syndrome when you see in media oh you know they're a brilliant doctor they're a brilliant physicist they can do this all day no they can't they, they might be really good at it. it doesn't mean that they don't have the same like i said like- the social tax the social hangover the emotional crash yeah, so sorry, I went on a rant there. No, 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 it's fine. So, so, so we've actually skipped a beat because we should explain what a special interest is. It's basically yes, we should. a lot sorry. of auti- autistic people have not just one, sometimes several topics that they are really intensely interested in. Yes, and often they will talk, especially people on the autistic spectrum that struggle with social cues, will just talk at length about uh, said topic. Like I just did. Yeah. Like I knew a gentleman that was really into cats. Okay. Like he really likes cats and will always bring up cats. And it can be like that just because he's so passionate about them. And like, there's no mediation of that passion. Like I'm kind of like that with folklore. I often say like folklore is my specialist topic. Mm -hmm. And it's a common greeting when like autistic people are talking and meeting. It's like, so what's your specialist topic? Well, I've had this quite a few times. Interesting. It's like, like one of the things is I know quite a lot of autistic people and that's because I can communicate with them better. 
Mm. So before my diagnosis, I was, I had people that I felt like I just clicked with. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I struggle so much to make small talk and communicate with a lot of people, but there are these, every so often I'd meet this one person who I just click with and I could really easily communicate with them and understand what they mean. Mm -hmm. And after I got my diagnosis, I realized all these people in my friendship groups who were in that category were other autistic people. Mm -hmm. We were just sort of having the same language and need to express in the same ways. Mm -hmm. And I, I must admit there's been similar occasions, but I've also found myself very fractious Mm. with other autists Mm -hmm. because, and the way I've always thought about this, and maybe this is wrong, I don't know, but the way I've always thought about this is there is the neurotypical language of the world. Mm -hmm. There is the non-neurotypical language of the world, but then there are languages within that non-neurotypical language. And it's, it's, to give it an analogy that your listeners may be able to relate to slightly more is imagine there are, you know, think about language. There is English, mm-hmm. and most people talk English in terms of, like, our listener base, I'm assuming. But then there's also, and I, I'll use this example because this is what I know, like, there's also Chinese. Yeah. But you can get two people who speak Chinese who cannot converse because they speak different versions of Chinese, whether they speak Mandarin and Cantonese, or in like even going one step further, they speak two separate dialogues of Mandarin, one north, one south, and there'll be differences in language there. And so for me, it's like, okay, I can liaise with the neurotypical world. The non-neurotypical world, I can liaise with some of it, but I can't liaise with all of it because I don't mm-hmm. understand that particular way of doing it. Yeah, I oh, know that that's totally a thing. And it's, but yes, to go back to specialist topics as kinks, I've definitely seen this. Mm-hmm. I've seen people who have sort of one kink or one very specific kink that they're very into and want to do and need to talk about all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this very much feels like a specialist topic. Yep. I... I have seen this. I wouldn't say that everyone who has a specialist kink is on the spectrum or this is the case, oh, no, no. which I think is one misconception we're at fear of kind of perpetuating here. Mm. But it, it, it can definitely be a thing. I know for myself, it tends to be that I have a... I mean, Craig, you already know this, but like your list, listeners may not if this is the first time they're meeting me, like... I have a fairly broad range of kinks that I yeah. maneuver through, mm-hmm. but I tend to be the type of person that when I do find myself moved towards a new kink, I won't necessarily take everything around that kink and take it all in and, you know, savant mm-hmm. it, but I tend to focus on it and find where my thing is within it, find what I want from it and stick there and work my way through one thing at a time and like some of your listeners will be sat here and go yeah but that's what everyone does and I, I i agree yeah everyone probably does this to some degree but for me it's like if i'm in that position that this is the kink that i'm going through right now then it like when it's a new kink usually that's the only kink that i do for a while and it won't be like oh i'll have this session where i'm doing bondage and this session where i'm doing you know i was gonna say chastity but i guess that's a variation on bondage like hypno for example yeah. or whatever 
like when I started with the hypno stuff with the boy, we did a lot of hypno because I was trying to work out what I like. And like, I, I spent a long time going through like various forums and working out what works and what doesn't for me, et cetera. And like what side of things I like to be on, et cetera. And then once I got that, that's locked in. I know what that is. I'm good with that. I'm not saying that's not going to expand further, but like I'm at a point that I'm comfortable with that, you know? And it's almost like, I always find kink as something of like a buffet. Like there is everything out and everything that you can try and everything is, you know, all, all, all the food of the world is in front of you. Yeah. And do you want, do you want to try? And I, I always say to people, it's just like, I will try most things as long as they are legal. I will try most things twice. Once to see whether it works for me and once to see whether, like, if it didn't work for me the first time, was it just the way it was done or mm. was it where I was in that moment or is it absolutely not going to work for me? Yeah. No, that's a very wise way of doing it, I feel. And I think this taps into something which is you have to be wary of pathologizing people's interests and behaviors. Mm-hmm. It's like just because... Like, how much of being an autistic person where you're really passionate about something is that you pathologizing it by saying it's your specialist interest? Yeah. yeah. And this is difficult because it's always hard to tell how much of our brain chemistry makes up who we are and how much is a more nebulous sort of, this is my identity, this is who I consider myself to be. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it can be hard because obviously, like, so I was diagnosed late in life. Mm-hmm. And what's that, what that has done for me is I've had to go through and reevaluate a lot of my life, especially a lot of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And it's changed. And I do keep finding myself, oh, so that's why I do that, because of my autism. That's why I do that, because of my autism. And it's like, I have to, like, I do have to stop myself from completely pathologizing myself and just saying, mm-hmm. like, I have interests of my own. I'm not just doing this. Because of my neurochemistry, I'm doing this because of yep. me. It's who I am. I find that interesting because your experience and mine in that are very different. Because mm-hmm. for me, talking about... And this is going to sound very strange to your listeners after talking for as long as we have. Mm-hmm. But talking about my Asperger's and talking about me are so entwined that it's very hard to separate one from the other and it's very difficult. Like I have been asked by doctors, et cetera, before, like I've gone, I've gone along to a doctor who I've not been to before and they see it on my note and they're like, okay, well, what does this mean for you? And I can't answer that question because I don't know how to explain it. Because to me, where I start, sorry, where I stop and the autism starts it's not a, a demarcation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no, it, it it's something that. Yeah, no, I completely understand that because I'm having trouble talking about this. It's like because it is this thing that affects your whole life. Yeah, it is literally you experience the world in a different way. Mm-hmm. The whole world, everything in your experience is different. Yep, and it's like so trying to explain to someone that's never felt that is. I find it near impossible Yeah. when I've been talking to my managers, like when I came out about them, I just could not articulate mm-hmm. how, because 
it's trying to articulate how you experience the world to people. Yeah. One thing that I struggle with as well is trying to imagine a hypothetical. And so if someone goes, oh, well, you know, would you like to do X, Y, and Z? I'm, I'll sit there and I'll be like, I guess. I don't know because I can't visualize it, which can make hooking up interesting because, you know, that's usually the kind of question that you get asked. Oh, well, would you like it if I did this? And I'm like, well, I don't know until we're in that situation. Mm-hmm. And people always get really put off. Like if, if I'm that blunt with them, and I guess this is kind of masking conversation to some degree, but like if I'm that blunt with them, it's one of the reasons why I'm not, because if I'm like that, people are a bit like, oh, well, he's a bit. And it's just like, but what do you want me to say? Because I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like for, for me, it's like if I'm doing a session, like, I'm, like me and my boy have a very good relationship that he and I have done our negotiation so much at this point that we know mostly what's going to be the case. And it's a case of if we're adjusting our negotiations, it's to say, right, I can't do this today rather than this lot is on the table Mm -hmm. sort of thing. It's, you know, kind of the opposite of how you do a negotiation at the start because we've been together that long. And so that's really freeing to me because I don't have to try and plan everything ahead and imagine the scene beforehand because I can't do it. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. And I always describe myself as kind of living in spontaneity mm-hmm. not that there isn't regimented structure to things because again i know the environment i know this i know x i know y you know so that sort of thing but i can't my mind doesn't process and won't let me you know here's the 20 steps there you yeah. know <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean even though by the, by the same token when i'm in the social hangover i know i haven't got the steps to do three things four for things forward like but that's immediate future Mm-hmm. Because the moment I start looking any further than that, my brain just, it can't process it. It's And it's a very weird thing to try and explain this mm-hmm. because it's almost a contradiction, but it's not. It's just, again, the key word that keeps coming up, contextual. For me, everything is contextual. Yeah, no, totally. It, like planning ahead of a scene, as I've said, is exhausting. And it's sort of being in the moment. And part of what I like about being a sub is... You don't have to plan stuff. Mm. And the other thing, which ties into like reading social cues, is the social cues in a BDSM scene are very simplified. Yes. And like you will be told what's happening. You you won't have to figure it out. You will just be told and mm-hmm. you'll be asked and you can directly respond. And it's interesting because I feel the same thing. You, like you've said, you don't like doing club events and like mm-hmm. kink events as such. Yeah, I enjoy kink events for the similar reason because when you are at an event, like one of the ones that I go to is collared, and there's the social aspect and there's, mm-hmm. there's play that happens. And if, if you're playing with someone, you know pretty quickly because the the cues are very mm-hmm. direct that that's going to be the thing because they're either into you or they're not. Oh yeah. And it's like, like if you go to if you go to a sauna or a bathhouse, like you know very quickly like something's gonna happen, something's gonna not. Yeah. There there's very rarely that oh is it is it is it not do, do you is that, you know are they interested and like there isn't that whole like trying to jump through the hoops of neurotypical communication. Yeah. yeah. You can just be direct with people. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying being dick with it. I'm just saying yeah. like it's a lot more direct. 
Yeah, and it's so there's one of the things I always talk about on this program is safety. Mm-hmm. And this brings me on to something which I always have to talk with Doms about when we're doing mm-hmm. a scene, which is, as we've discussed, overload is a thing. Yes. And autistic people deal with it in different ways, but the two big ones are meltdowns where you feel overloaded and express it, or yep. like you and myself, you shut down. Mm-hmm. Now, in a BDSM scene, this carries concerns. Yes. Because say, if I'm in a very intense scene and I start to shut down, I cannot verbalize. Yes. I can. I physically cannot say stop or I need to talk. Yep. So I need the Dom to be able to read those signs in me. Yep. Which and, is one of the reasons I don't sub very much. Yeah. Yeah. It's... I've had it happen. And I guess trigger warning around consent for your listeners like one of the early experiences i had of kink involved bondage and this was a new guy that i was playing with and we'd met for coffee and things seemed to go well so i went back to his which is something i would not normally do either but i was in a flow and i felt that i had a handle we went to his we had a session but before the session started i said to him there are two things i need you to know I'm autistic and like sensory can, can be a thing for me. I says, because this is the first time we're meeting, you absolutely do not. Like I'm fine for you to like tie my hands, but leave my feet. Always make sure I can move. Do not pin me down. Absolutely do not pin me down. Mm-hmm. The session comes to an end, or at least I thought it had come to an end. And then he lays on top of me and I can't move. I couldn't even verbalize my safe word. I couldn't tap out. I could, I literally Mm. froze. I have never been so frightened. And this is, this is, I don't mind admitting this. Like I've properly freaked out. I have never been so frightened. And then he lifts up and he must've known something was wrong, but he's like, are you okay? I'm like, yep, yep. I'm fine. And just, I immediately removed myself from that situation. Mm. And then he texts me afterwards. It's like, that was a really good session. And I, I just texted him back and went, the one thing I told you was do not pin me down. I do not communicate with me again because I just couldn't. And it, I think it was a full on, like I had just shut down. And this is, this is why I only like tend to sub with people that I've known for a while and that mm-hmm. I've got a handle on. Now, for example, my boy on occasion will dominate me because I'll be in that mood. And we've had a session before where I was fine. Like, he was on top of me. We were in in the moment. We were going like, and then out of nowhere, the damn. That, that's an analogy that might make sense to you. It might yeah. not to your listeners, yeah. but like, I I kind of describe it like when it's a physical overload. It's like the dam mm-hmm. breaks and suddenly it goes, and suddenly everything's too much, and the dam broke. And like we were really getting into it, and suddenly it's like no trigger, no warning, no nothing. Just the dam broke, and I started. To, I could feel myself locking out. But me and my boy have a non-verbal safe word, which we have because occasionally he will have a gagging or something like that. And in that moment, like I couldn't even verbalize. And it wasn't even actually conscious that I did this. It's only afterwards when he pointed out to me once I started to come down, I started tapping out on him. And mm-hmm. we have a repeated we have a repeated tap. I'm not gonna say exactly what that tap is, but we have a repeated tap. And I didn't realize when I set this up with him, this was entirely subconscious. This repeated tap is 
damn near perfectly the same tap that I do when I'm stimming. Right. And I didn't know that I'd done this until such time it came for me to call on that. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't even, like, I genuinely couldn't focus. I couldn't even think. It's also not an uncommon thing, like, that I'd had with some, like, ex-partners, that we'd have a session, and it'd be a really good session, really intense session, really, like, really happy session, nothing going wrong at all. But straight after that session, I would basically need them to essentially walk away and go out of the room. And I would just be curl fetal for about five minutes. And it didn't matter whether I'd been dom or sub, like, that would be a thing. And it was nothing to do with them. It was just I needed that moment of recentering. Yeah. And so it's important for anyone, like, if, if someone, if you're playing with someone who is autistic, ask them what their overload looks like mm-hmm. if they know and what they need in terms of aftercare because aftercare mm-hmm. can be very very different for someone with autism yeah because a lot of people talk about aftercare and they talk about you know talking and cuddling and sort of having that sort of tender moment and everything but for some of us that might work some of the time but other times that's going to be too much because all we need after afterwards is we need five minutes of complete silence and nobody being near us. Because and this will sound really stupid, like just my my ex partner being near me afterwards is and this would let me be very clear, they'd done nothing wrong at all. Mm-hmm. Right? But just them being in my immediate vicinity stressed me out. Not because they'd done anything wrong or there's anything untoward going on. But because them being in my immediate vicinity put my defenses up and put me in a position where it's like, even though they're my partner, like there's someone like subconsciously, there's someone around me. I need to be pulling myself together. I need to be presenting myself in a certain way, etc. And it was never anything to do with them, but I needed them to just walk out of the room for five minutes just so I can basically shut that part of my brain down and just let myself kind of come back into having grasp on my senses. Yeah. And I always felt really, I still do to this day, feel really bad when I have to say that to whether it's my boy or whether it's another partner, like, because I feel like I'm pushing them away. But it's not that I don't want them to be around me. It's just I need essentially to reconnect those little pieces of my sensory input piece by piece. Yeah. So as not to, it's like plugging things into a circuit. If you Mm. plug everything in at once, you're going to blow the fuse. Yeah. But if you do it gradually, so the system's got time to compensate. Yeah, it's no, it does mean like aftercare, safe words, situations like that will be different for autistic people. Mm-hmm. And this is part of why I wanted to do this episode because it can be hard to communicate that to people if they don't oh, yeah. understand. It can. And I think we would be remiss as well to not point out that some of this is trial by fire. Mm hmm. Some of this is very definitely a case of being with the individual, talking with the individual and going through what might happen, mm-hmm. what may be their needs afterwards. But until you hit that point, you don't know for sure. And like, for example, like I said earlier, I struggle to visualize a hypothetical scenario. So I can tell you based on the experiences that I've had that I've just relayed to you what's Mm -hmm. happened in the past. 
But I don't know how that's going to manifest in that moment with that person when I get there. It may be different. So with my boy, for example, most of the time, aftercare consists of cuddling and chatting. Mm -hmm. But with my ex-partner, absolutely nothing that they'd done to cause this. With like We were just as close and everything else. But with them, I needed that silence. And part, of, I think part of that might be a little bit of a personality thing because they were quite an energetic personality. Whereas my boy will tell you, like, me and him are quite, not not sedentary, but we're very much more sort of constant level. Whereas, like, my ex-partner, like, he he could... he If he had sugar, God help. Like, I, never, I never saw him high on sugar, but I, I would dread to because, like, he really could, like, bounce around. And I love that about him. But you know when I'm coming back when I'm coming back to normal after a session, it was too much for me to handle in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so it was very much on an individual, individual basis. So yeah. it's all well and good. You like you can talk about this first, but also just have understanding that just because you've talked about it going a certain way doesn't mean it will. Mm-hmm. And the key thing is, yeah, it's a little bit of a trial by fire, and it's all about patience and how you communicate and how like you go about it. And you the the key thing to I would say for someone who's non-autistic, who's playing with someone who is autistic, is listen to what you're being told. Mm. Even if it's not being delivered in the nicest way. Because in the moment when you're in overload, or you're just not generally coping very well, you can be unintentionally very harsh. Or come across very harsh. Because in that moment, you're not worried about social cues. You're not worried about the attitude that's coming over in your voice when you talk to someone. You're not worried about Mm -hmm. the 20 different cue markers that you as someone who is neurotypical, as in like the dom or whatever that's neurotypical, that you do subconsciously. Because there's a good chance that we're having to do them consciously, but in that moment we can't. Yeah. So we can come over a lot sharper than is intended. And this is by no means an excuse for anybody but it's something to be aware of. Mm. I mean, one thing I've done in the past is if I know I'm playing with an autistic person, I tend to have, and I've been in the dominant position, I've done a slow wind down. Mm-hmm. So like you said, like giving them that space, I will quieten down and then like I will put the, as part of the scene towards the end, I will put them in a blindfold Right. Or I will relax the scene in a way that I know will reduce their input. Mm-hmm. So like it peaks. So we have this peak input. And then why, as I wind the scene down, like I do it in a sexy way to give them the space mm-hmm. and the lack of input to help them recenter themselves. And like you can integrate that into a scene. Oh, yeah. Like, and that can definitely be useful. Yeah. And, and as we've talked about at some points, like, your artistic behaviors and the way your mind works can work very well in a scene if you understand how to mm-hmm. integrate it properly. It's oh, not yeah. a barrier to be overcome. It's a way to understand how your mind works and work with it, not against mm-hmm. it. No, I would agree with that. I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, for me personally, I am the kind of person that enjoys a scene to be fairly full on. Mm-hmm. especially when I am subbing like I and like this thing that I'm talking about where I like I just needed silence like 
is usually if I was being more submissive. Mm. Because when I'm being submissive, I know that I need somebody who will, I always refer to it as sort of pin me down and keep me down. Yeah. Because otherwise, kind of, the, because I'm more used to being dominant, that portion of my brain starts running. Mm-hmm. If you, if I can get someone that can keep me down and being submissive in a scene, that's what I need. So that kind of wind back doesn't always work for me. So as much as it can yeah. be a little bit intense, like I sometimes need that it's going to be intense right up until the last minute, and then I'm going to give you some silence to come back. You know? Yeah. Again, but that's that's the way that I experience it, yeah. you know? Yeah, because, again, all autistic people are different, as all mm-hmm. people are different, and you need to let, listen to your partner and talk to them about what they need. Yeah. Like, there's nothing here that isn't, like, the standard rules of BDSM, in a way. Yeah. It's all just communication and understanding your partner's needs. This is all aut- SSC and RAC. Yeah. It's just with autistic people, though, needs may be a bit more outside of what you're normally used to. Mm-hmm. No, I absolutely, I I basically have nothing to add there because I absolutely yeah. agree. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to leave it because obviously this is a huge topic and yeah. we've talked about it for ages, <laughs> but I think that's a good natural place to leave it. Yeah, I would agree with that. So yeah, thank you very much for coming on. I've, I've been wanting to do, have you on for ages, like do a collab <laughs> as the kids say. <laughs> no, I, I do appreciate that. And at some point, I mean, we've been discussing in the background, I won't like say what mm. yet, but we've been discussing in the background to get you over onto our show at some point. I'd love to. Um, it, it's been nice. If you don't mind me giving a quick shameless plug. Oh yeah. Um, I was going to say, where can people find you? <laughs> so if you want to hear more from me, and I promise I'm not always quite as intense as I've been on here today, you can find me and my boy Chris over at Teabags and Joysticks. We are a, we, we describe ourselves as the kinky video game podcast. Mm-hmm. So like first half of our show is usually discussing video games or current events. Second half of our show is always a semi-specialist topic so we'll we will talk about we've done episodes on polyamory we've done episodes on chastity we usually like have a kink back half of the episode and a like more current event and gaming front half sometimes we kind of combine the two which is how we worked out that darth vader is probably a leather daddy but yeah you can find us the easiest way to find us is we are at tv and j just about everywhere we're on instagram we're on uh twitter we're on mastodon on the wolf group and we are on spotify and everything else like every major platform that you can find us on (laughs) no like i highly recommend your show i've i always find it very informative and very fun to listen to thank you the thing that we try and do is like just for your listeners so they know like we said we tend to approach each topic as a conversation Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily this is what this is it's more we are two kinksters who sit down and go, well, you know, where, where's our take on this particular thing? Yeah. And we'll try and bring people on when we can and talk about particular things. But yeah. <laughs> cool. So as always, listeners, I hope you enjoyed listening and play safe. Thank you very much.